Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives. One minute of screen time per episode. I'm your host, Professor Robert E.G. Black, and with me, as was usual on Two Minutes About Time, is my co-host, Luke Allen. Hello. Now, you said this movie's too American? Yeah, before recording, I was like, I, I said to Robert that this just didn't work for me. Like, <laughs> I'm willing to give it another shot at some point. Because it was also one that I had to kind of watch in bits and pieces because I've been mm. in self-isolation doing college work today. So it's kind of like get fit in an hour before film, an hour in my lunch break, an hour after English. It was been one of those. <laughs> so it could have been that. It could have been that I had a couple of other bits to do. But it felt first that for about two hours, nothing happened. And then everything happened. Yeah. And it confused me a bit. And then when I was trying to follow stuff, it just felt really, really American in places. Well, it's, it's very much, it's not a movie that's literally really plot driven. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. And I think that's why I zoned out for a while. <laughs> and then I was saying like, oh heck, things are happening. Yeah. Parts of it I liked. This scene was actually one of them that was kind of weirdly standout for me. It was the one where I was like, I'll have stuff to talk about if I have this minute. Nice. And then I checked and I have this minute. So that's good. Yeah. And that scene, we're still in the kitchen at Fred's and Marie's apartment. He still got her by the arms. We cut him off mid-phrase as he said he's, I forget how her question was phrased, but he said he'd figure himself out and realize that he's not an officer and a gentleman, gentleman anymore, anymore. just another, another sort of jerk out of a job. job. Uh, now, the phrase an officer and gentleman was widely used by British armed forces in the 19th century, but Fred, of these three men, is the one who served in the Air Force, so he was flying out of England and hanging around with British soldiers. Huh? Was codified in Article 133 of the U.S. Uniform of Military Justice, though, which allows conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman to be punishable by court-martial. It was also, You've of course... good prep. <laughs> oh, I do this, yeah. It was also, of course, a novel by Evelyn Waugh in 1955. It was an episode of BBC's Comedy Playhouse in 1970. And there was, a, of course, the film most people know the phrase from. Yeah. Nominated for six Oscars, seven Golden Globes, winning two of each. It was also up for, I believe, one BAFTA. Still haven't seen that Oh, film. it's a good movie. Yeah. I remember as a kid, I thought it was boring, but watching it as an adult, I loved it. Fred says, now go on and sit down and read a magazine and listen to the radio. And he finally lets go of her arms and... We cut back to the wider angle. I don't know what you thought of how the movie was shot. Nothing stood out to me, which is, could be a good thing. <laughs> one of the notable things is that Wyler, the director, really likes depth of field. Yeah. He likes to have layers of action going on so you can decide what you're looking at rather than forcing it. I did think that actually in some of the in some of the scenes in the shops where it was very much kind of mm -hmm. everything's here and everything's, and everything's in, in focus, yeah. And the the most famous one from this was at the bar when Homer sits down to play the piano and in the background Fred is making his phone call to Peggy and uh, ah. so you have we get to decide do we look at Fred, do we look at Homer? Or do we look at Al, who's standing by Homer, but really paying attention to Fred? It's kind of a cool shot. And their sets, unlike a lot of sets at the time, don't have high ceilings for all the lights. Instead, they're treated like real apartments, even though it's a set. That's cool. And so this kitchen is tiny. Which possibly expresses why this doesn't really have a ton... It does in places, but not a ton of moving camera. Right. Especially in this scene, it's very stationary camera. Although in this minute, we do get a bit of where Weiler did traditional Hollywood photography when it gets to Marie sitting on the chair by herself. We get like the more angelic lighting that they would put on actresses at the time, which is how he shot the women in the film. But he didn't shoot the men that way. He treated them more realistic, just set the camera down and let things happen. Which I guess looking at it just as a general, that's the way things were done is one thing. Part of me is wondering, is there some sort of symbolic way we could look at that? 
You mean lighting her like traditional Hollywood? Yeah, lighting her in, in traditional Hollywood and treating them normally. It's it well, it's interesting, especially with Marie, because the movie doesn't like Marie. Mm. You know, she's the woman who needs to go away. The movie likes Peggy, but it's in lighting her just like all the other women and like the lit actress actresses at the time. It's treating her as something sort of idolized, and so it's it's okay with her in this shot, which is nice. And he, yeah, he says, while I cook the soup and she's already out of the room. He goes over to the counter, gets the can opener. We cut to Marie sitting in the living room. She knocks a newspaper out of the chair and sits down. And specifically, she sits down just below the one photo of the two of them together because they were only together for 12 days before he went off to war. Mm. So it's, they met while he was in training and then she moved to his hometown. That they have this photo at all is notable. And it's the one photo that makes them look like it's sort of this illusion of a happy couple, which they are not. I like how this film puts a lot of focus on the reversal of gender roles at this time. Like, oh, yeah. especially considering this is 1946, they've not got the big hindsight to go, this is what's changed. It's literally what has just changed and they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And you've got, you've got the man cooking and the woman sitting down. Yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, like, not what would have been happening in the 30s and what a lot of um, sociologists and whatnot until like the 70s 80s would would have said is unconventional yeah but in this moment it works because it's it tells us who fred is i mean he there's big class differences between homer and al and fred and we know fred has poor his parents are very poor we only see them briefly in the movie they live like under a bridge in a little shack or rather his father and his second wife do and so Fred doesn't come from money, whereas Marie likes money. Yeah. I talked about this last minute, but Marie is presented, I mean, even in the scene, she's wearing a shiny dress and lots of jewelry because she wants to go out. She has spent money on things during a war where a lot of people didn't spend money on things because you weren't supposed to. Yeah, I noticed that in a in a few scenes was that, that sort of focus on on jewelry for her mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it, it i think it's definitely a film that will reward upon rewatch which i I will do there there are a few films i've watched where first time round i didn't really go for them but i come out of them thinking i'm gonna like this next time i see it we cut back to fred in the kitchen opening the can he clips the opener in place and then he actually backs up to look out at marie which is funny because he doesn't care what she's doing he told her to go read a magazine but he says i'll, I'll fix you a nice, nice meal, meal honey, honey. Just like I used used to do behind behind the the fountain fountain. before the war. As as we know in the film, he used to work as a soda jerk, and he will again briefly later. Bullard's was the biggest drugstore, and the best in all the downtown of Boone City. Fred was there from 7 in the morning until school, from 5 p.m. to 10, three nights a week, from 7 to 11 other nights. He was a sandwich man, a soda fountain helper. He got four bits an hour. He was looking for a better job. And then on Sunday afternoon, when he had slept all through the frightened news, he woke and heard the radio. His father wasn't home. His father's second wife was playing bridge. No one was home. He went downstairs. The radio talked on. It spoke of Hickam Field as he stood in the door. Pearl Harbor Sunday. Thursday he was in. He joined the military really quickly. Which I think was, was the case for a lot of people at this point in the war. Yes. I think early on, for us Brits, I think they, people were a bit more picky and it was a bit more of a choice mm-hmm. and then it kind of became that you needed a reason not to and if you volunteered you were straight up as far as i'm aware like it, it once again it's one of those weird things which i imagine you probably get a lot of in the states with your war movies is 
here we don't get that much about America's involvement in the war. Huh. Like a lot of at least a lot of the war movies and history we studied kind of only touch on America in a very Britain centered. So once again, that was another one of those weird things where I kind of had to rework out my my way of thinking and viewing the war. Really, yeah, but because of the way like some of our like our air force especially was based in England, we get a lot of England included in ours mm. when it's European theater. But when it's like the Pacific, yeah, we wouldn't even mention any anybody else. We don't care. I don't even know if British troops were with us in the Pacific. They probably were. Yeah, I feel like I don't have a, as much knowledge on the war as I would have liked because, like, we tend to study it in like primary school, so it's kind of mm. just touching on everything a lot more about like the evacuation of children and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I was watching the Doctor Who Christmas special, the Doctor the Widow on the Wardrobe this week, and that kind of era of just kind of the the family and the kids at wartime is kind of where a lot of our our media. I think is centered around, or at least a lot of our media that I absorb is centered around in the war. We cut to Mary looking toward the kitchen, sitting up, then slouches in her chair, kind of defeated. We get back to Fred, and then that's when we get the closer-up shot of Marie I was talking about before, the Hollywood shot, Mm. which softer lighting, a little softer focus, and notably then she does a move that came up on set, wasn't in script, removing her fake eyelashes and sitting back again, which kind of goes against the nicer shot. Is that she's taking off the fake stuff? Can I be all 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 film studies y and talk about this chiaroscuro of yeah. it all? Because it, I mean, it's like you know the the blackness of her dress and her outfit, as opposed to her very pale skin, kind of creates a very sort of aesthetically pleasing yeah. shot, which I assume is that classic Hollywood lighting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it it does, especially when you put it out, it does kind of stand out as quite different to the sequence we've had leading up to it. Yeah. Because most of this, I mean, the last, what, three minutes has been in this kitchen. And it was a wide shot of the two of them back and forth. It got in close when he grabbed her arms, mm. but not that close. This is the closest it's been on either of them for this whole scene. I got the detail on the eyelashes from Sarah Kozloff in the BFI book that the removal of eyelashes was something that came up on the set. And so the BFI book at least suggests that there's a, a fairly large British following of the film. Yeah. We fade to the Midway Drugstore, which is a very busy set with all the rows all the people all the signs hanging above Mm. it was really impressive really to kind of think that's a very large-scale set (laughs) yes especially because when we first go there we went in the office up above and that's all a set especially 1946 do you have knowledge of when about this film was filmed in 46 it was filmed in 46 what early 1946 it was filmed in spring into the beginning of summer i know post-production was in like september even though it was coming out in what november it was a quick turnaround. Yeah, a lot of films from that era seemed to be quite like that, where it was kind of... I've noted the, a couple the props films. that were from 46, so this was like brand new. Wow. Uh, but yeah, for, for that level of set, I'd imagine post-war. I don't know how... I, I don't know with, with America as to how, you know, the country's finances and everything all were post-war and how much it kind no, of I think affected I the economy. I forget where I read about this. This wasn't in Kozlov's book. It was in some review or article I found online. This store was basically stocked by an actual store. Uh, so they basically like borrowed a store's worth of stuff and just put it on their own shelves. That's not a bad idea. <laughs> and so then they just had to give it back. I guess now you filmmakers probably just get the right to film in a store, but obviously it, it was a very set. Yeah, you just film in an actual store. Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Which is why it was interesting at the watching, because I watched these minutes before I went and watched the whole movie. Ah. And at least I'd glance at them to like get the script sorted. And then 
it's all inside. All my minutes are inside. <laughs> the beginning of the movie, they're out flying. That's real. Is it? They're out driving. That's real. The, there was one thing about the driving, which I'm sure you noticed at the very start. It it seems such a blatant overlay with the the mirror. Oh yeah, the rear mirror. It it that 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 seemed like a very kind of blatant overlay that it was very actually quite yeah. charming. Yeah, there's a there's a whole section in Kozlov's book about the use of mirrors, including that shot in this, where we see a lot of people in mirrors. Well, you you get why they did it, mm-hmm. and obviously then it would still have been quite effective. But then even looking at that, the, there's some films in. I mean, for example, Sunrise from 1927. Like that uses a lot of overlay hmm. and that is seamless. So to kind of even have moments of overlay here where it's quite blatant yeah. is charming, but I'd imagine even for the era they'd seen better. Yeah, probably. But I also don't know that they cared. Yeah, no, I don't know. Fair. I don't I don't know. Be interesting to see what a general audience thought of a movie at the time. Yeah, have you seen Sunrise, by the way? Uh FW Manor. No. I've seen part of it. We watched a clip from it in film class, but I don't think I ever watched the whole thing. Once again, that that's one I've only watched for film class, but it fascinated right. me. I was kind of like, this is a really good movie. Because it was one where you start watching it and you got the typical because you're in school or college, it's yeah. instantly boring. And then suddenly it was <laughs> kind of like, actually, I'm really invested and I don't want to stop now to analyze this scene. I want to watch the rest of the film <laughs> and find out <laughs> what happens. It, it's one I definitely recommend. And it's it's one where some of the effects... You even look at now and think, how did they do that? So the fact that it was 1927, it's like... Nice. Yeah, Murnau was very, very good. Now, 20 minutes ago, when Fred first came to the store and was talking to Mr. Bullard, we already saw the guy he's about to talk to, Sticky. Oh, and wow. a woman, I don't remember if she had a name. I don't remember if she was another person that works at the store, talking behind his back. Uh, the woman says, didn't, didn't he, he used, used to work, work here? here? Yes, yes, he did. I bet, I bet he's, he's back, back looking, looking for a job. job. And, and he'll, he'll get, get it, too. too. With all Don't those ribbons on his, on his chest. chest. Well, well nobody's job is safe with all these servicemen crowding in. Which was not entirely true. Servicemen were coming back, but by October 46, when Best Years was in post-production, veterans accounted for half of the country's unemployed. Hmm. And uh, Kozlov says these jobs that ex-servicemen did land did not always suit them, which is part of the point in the movie, is that these jobs don't fit these men anymore. It did seem rather odd how instantly they offered him like a promotion the moment he turned up oh well yeah it's because they're trying to look good you know you bring the soldier in who's like been decorated for his service and you especially al at the bank they bring him in specifically to give loans to other soldiers yeah so it's kind of instantly a way of of appearing trustworthy yeah and appear like they care but then they immediately second guess him on how he does it which we'll get to next week not necessarily that they care, it's that they think they care. Or they th- or they don't know how to care, so they just give them a job. Okay, that makes sense. Same with this. Fred should not be working, selling at the perfume counter, or doing the soda jerk job again later. But he does, because that's what they have for him. And he's not good for much else. And ordinary jobs didn't pay very well. During the war, labor unions had refrained from asking for raises or striking, but with the end of the conflict, pent-up demand for higher salaries and better working conditions exploded. Uh, in 46, on an upsurge of labor unrest and strikes, some violent. In 1946, the average salary for full-time employees was $2,360, roughly. Kozlov says 26000 because she's writing in 2011. It's actually about $31,500. Fred's salary at the drugstore is below this by about 30%. He's not getting paid very well. 
for a job he doesn't want to do. Yeah, because with what I was kind of commenting a, a while back before about kind of not knowing how economically affected America was by the war, mm-hmm. I know that way into kind of the 50s and 60s, there was major amount of rationing in food-wise in England, at least. Yes. And kind of everything seemed to be low budget, which which I think is why there is such a charm to post-war films, probably both in England and America, is that is that kind of just general happiness for the most part on a low sweet budget Mm -hmm. in that way post-war films to me i get part of the same enjoyment from post-war films like early post-war films to some bad movies where you just go these people are having fun like it doesn't matter i can't pop it into as analytical a a lens as i can other stuff because you can it's just got the charm of it's fun it's silly just enjoy yourself which obviously this one actually has a lot more serious plot but right. for the most part but this this scene part of that charm is i love the signs here because you have like prices obviously for things banana splits are 29 cents strawberry sundaes 27 face powder 29 toothpaste 19 cold cream is 69 and i'm trying to remember what cold cream is for i think it's for like putting on your face but it's so expensive aspirin 17 perfume it says is 29 but if on their perfume counters we see it is things of lots of different sizes so i don't know which one is 29 cents but why there's so many signs up i thought it was just the way this store was until i was looking at the signs it's the month end sale so at the end of every month they have a sale which is weird mind you there are some companies in britain that seem to be constantly having sales (laughs) like always going out of business there's a uh a a company called dfs that do furniture and i can't remember who i think i've been lee mack stand-up comedian who lit who like one of his opening lines in one of his gigs is that one person who paid full price for their sofa must be feeling really silly now (laughs) and it's because it's just you constantly turn on tv and it's the dfs sale and it's like always a sale (laughs) The next few days are double discount days at DFS. For our biggest ever sale, it's double sale discounts on all surplus stock. Like this beautiful sofa, previously 849, sale price 675, double discount price just £499. And double discount means this sofa only 298. This leather sofa is less than half price at 395. Everything is reduced. Every suite, settee, sofa, chair, every style, every colour. So don't miss out on double discount at DFS from today, including New Year's Day. Grantham, Northampton, Kings Lynn and Bury St Edmunds. And the same with, like, there's a sort of book slash stationery store called The Works, and pretty much everyone I walk past seems to be having a stock clearance sale. (laughs) So there are definitely shops like this where it's just, like, sales all the time. So much that you don't kind of bat an eyelid when you walk past them as much as you normally would. By the way, a dollar and 46 was about the equivalent of $14.12 today. So, like, that banana split is about $4.00. By today's prices which is pretty good that's around about i think 10 pounds i think no i think right now the pound and dollar are really close i haven't they? checked it in about a year so one dollar is 76 pence okay what was the number you said 14 14 12 10 pounds 68 i wasn't too far off okay so he's getting a banana split for like three pounds yeah i guess that's normal <laughs> yeah maybe and among other items on the shelves behind the perfume counter is Sticky is Talking. Before we get to Sticky, we can see an ad for Libby Safe Edge Tumblers. This company still exists and still makes glasses for drinking. Uh, we see a doll that looks like it might be a Gund Easter Bunny doll, only it's slightly uglier than the pictures I could find, <laughs> so I'm not sure. And we see a box that I think is labeled Animal Fair. Which, when I looked that up, there was a comic book that had just started in March of 46, published by Fawcett Publications, that is now owned by DC, I believe. They bought it in 91. 
but it was a comic I'd never even seen. It was like a parody comic with animals dressed as like superheroes. And one of the ones looks like he's dressed like Robin Hood. It seemed pretty like amusing. Mm. And I'd never even seen it before. That was cool. So I do like the gag we get, I think, after this scene with the perfumes. Oh, when it's tiny? Yeah, like that yeah. That was that was a lovely bit of comic relief there where it was, I thought it was really kind of well done and well placed because to place comedy within a drama can be really really difficult mm-hmm. i mean yeah. even the show which i think you've seen skins mm-hmm. it does it well in places but also it can be su- such a blatant contrast that it's actually quite difficult yeah it takes you out of it yeah so it's it, it's always a nice relief where in a in a drama film or tv show they can have that bit of comedy where you don't instantly think oh, that <laughs> felt a bit off <laughs> sticky is showing of course fred the it accounts for 34% of our gross intake and an even higher proportion of our profits, which is probably true. I had to look that up, though, because I thought maybe perfumes was one of those things that went away during the war. There were some companies that didn't make new perfumes during the war because they were trying to conserve, but perfume was really popular. Huh. And there were a couple new ones that got really popular during the war. None of these bottles seems and labels seem to match any actual perfumes that existed at the time, though, <laughs> which is weird. It seems like they'd have to get these bottles from somewhere, but they're probably just really cheap ones we never heard of. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, though, that is like a lot of non-essential things seem to become more popular during Mm -hmm. kind of depressing times. So like the golden era of cinema kind of started during the Great Depression, the point where, you know, people would think people don't have much money, the fine, you know, the economy's broken down, they're not going to waste money going to the cinema, but... Of course they are, because it's the only bit of yeah. enjoyment they get. And I'd imagine, right. to an extent, that's what was happening with perfume sort of during and post-war. Well, especially in this country, I mean, I assume in England as well, they had certain cloths that were rationed or you couldn't use, you could only use a certain amount. Probably. I, I mentioned this last episode, like zoot suits were a rebellion against that. That's why they used so much cloth, is because they were deliberately going over the ration levels. 1945 to 1946, I'd imagine that perfume would also be on the intake for a lot of women getting ready for their true, husband true. or partner to come home. Although then a lot of them got divorced, as we mentioned yeah. last time. <laughs> but I, what I was saying is because they can't necessarily dress up as nice as they want, maybe they just want to smell good. And so perfume yeah. was still allowed. And so a lot of people would be wearing perfume. Yeah, definitely. To cover for any, you know, have to wear an old dress they've been wearing for years. So get a new f- fragrance. Hmm. Sticky continues as you readily surmise our customers, customers in this department are almost exclusively women. And Fred said yes, this. I'd surmise that. that. And that's when Sticky stops walking and looks at him, which is funny. He says, you, you must, must familiarize, familiarize yourself with the correct pronunciation of all the perfumes and toiletries. For instance, here's a popular number, Rev Romantique. Which, by the way, there was not a perfume called that then, but there is now. Launched in 2015. Do you think any inspiration from the With the generic name, I doubt it, but it's possible. Because as Fred points out, yeah, yeah that, that means, means romantic dream. dream. And Sticky says, you, you speak, speak French? French? And Fred says, well, well I'll tell you, Sticky, sticky just enough to make, make my way around the Paris, Paris bars. <laughs> Which he did, as we have pointed out in the book. It wasn't just that Marie slept with other men or went out with other men while he was gone. He slept with other women hmm. and admits it. Which I'd imagine that, you know, is a thing they can't really go into depth. It, 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 this is oh, no, they... post-Hayes Coes, isn't it? Or is it pre-Hayes This is still Hayes Code, but yeah. It's still Hayes Code, okay. It it was a problem that they think the movie suggests divorce is okay. Yeah, they wouldn't have been able to have even had any implication. And that actually made it into the FBI file about this movie, because yeah. they thought that was a communist yeah. influence. 
Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that being quite mm-hmm. controversial. The, well, in the movie, even more than the book. The sort of in the book, of he tells Marie to file for divorce the first night he gets back and finds her. Huh. We don't really see her in the book anymore. In the movie, it's more like they're trying to be a couple. And so his interactions with Peggy are even worse in the movie, I think, in terms of that moral code they thought they had. Yeah. Hayes Code is also such a weird era, especially with the fact that it kind of wasn't obligatory, right. for the most part. It was just... But if you didn't, then producers are gonna, and distributors are gonna have a problem, and you have to change things, and we talked about a movie last week huh. that, uh, that didn't get released. Huh. A documentary about soldiers in a mental hospital, and it didn't get released, because people didn't want to show that to anyone. In this movie, Homer's problem in the movie is much simpler, but real, because they got a, a guy who was missing his hands, than in the book. In the book, he has spasticity which basically means like he, his body is partly paralyzed and partly jerks around and it's more of a visual problem that they didn't want to put on screen necessarily yeah i'd imagine at this point they kind of had control more over cinema obviously than over books mm-hmm. and publications i'd imagine they probably it'd be harder to get uproar for yeah. a book than for although film. that book was written to be a movie they got Cantor to write a uh, book and then he was even part of turning it into a screenplay along with sherwood does that work better as a defense when there's controversial content in the film to say, well, it was in the book? I think so, but I think it really no, because especially in 46, they would expect the film to fix the controversial stuff. That's true. Even though the message of the film itself is controversial, because what it's about. Yeah, which is, I guess, a surprising thing to get past the Hayes Code, because a mm-hmm. lot of their focus was you can do this as long as the end message equals yeah. blank. So, you know, you can have someone being a criminal as long as they end up having to pay for it by the end. Well, yeah, the other code problem they had was the use of alcohol, because at the end of the movie, Al is still an alcoholic. He's still drinking. He doesn't stop. Getting back to the very end of this minute, Sticky doesn't like his old nickname, which is why I called him Sticky throughout this episode, because it's funny. He says, let's Let's get get one thing, and we cut him off mid-sentence. He's going to tell Fred, who now is under him in in his workplace, not to call him Sticky. Mm. That's where we leave Sticky and Fred at the perfume counter. Which, the whole imbalance between being over and under someone Mm -hmm. kind of crossed over initially from, like, families post-industrial revolution when people were working in workplaces and it's kind of a social balance which has been all over the place ever since it's it's especially weirder for me looking at this movie now because dana andrews who plays fred is in his 30s or might even be 40 in the book fred is 19 when he goes to war he's young or no i think he's 19 when he comes back uh, any other comments on this minute of the film? I don't think so. Other than, as I said, it's very American. Yeah. Not much happens and then a lot happens. Mm-hmm. And I will look forward to watching it again and going back through stuff. Mm-hmm. The main reason this scene did stand out to me is, especially as someone who's currently studying sociology, it was just quite interesting to see the, the instant reversal of gender roles yeah. at the start of the scene, which I was, you know, kind of surprised to see so early on post-war yeah. to be acknowledged. I guess to the listeners, thank you for listening. We have been Robert E.G. Black and Luke Allen of Two Minutes About Time. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Two Minutes About Time. IMDb, Two Minutes About Time. We had a Facebook group called The Cupboard that's still up and running and we do little bits here and there, but the whole of Two Minutes About Time is available to listen through 
there's some fun stuff there. We have people like Richard Curtis on, people like Darren Brown, Simon Fisher-Becker. Like, it's just a, a lovely group of people that we've managed to have to analyse what is a romantic comedy, but is also so much more than a romantic comedy. And you can find the Best Minutes podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. Or follow the show on social media at Butch's Place, The Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook, and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. There are over 180 other minute, Movies by Minutes podcasts available at moviesbyminutes.com. Check out the site for more great shows. Please join me here next time on the Best Minutes Podcast. Hey, Joe. You better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.